still continuing to, to struggle against that progression of the cancer. Uh, you've made your, your will known that the doctors are unable to do much more. If it be your will, grant him a miracle and healing. Otherwise, Lord, we pray you sustain, strengthen him, and continue to bless him with your peace. Bless us now, Lord, as we turn to your holy word and once again uh, consider the wonderful message shared by Isaiah. We pray this be done as you open our eyes and our hearts. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 44. Can you share a time when someone was blind to their cause and so blind to it they didn't even stop to realize they were making a mistake? <laughs> I saw Grace laughing right away, so like, let's see. So blind you didn't realize you were making a mistake. When did that ever happen? Nobody has anything to share otherwise? Um, I, I saw kind of a humorous example. There was a, a protesting group that was trying to stop the major oil companies. So what it would do is it would look for the delivery trucks and it would get in their way and it would stop them from moving down the road and they would just stand there and protest. You can imagine this be frustrating for the oil truck drivers as they're made to just sit there trying to deliver their, just do their job. Well, they were interviewing one of the oil truck drivers uh, when the protesters were, were stopping his truck and the protesters they interviewed said, we're just trying to stop the, the big oil machine from doing their stuff. We're, we're doing anything we can to stop them. And then they interviewed the truck driver and he was laughing. He said, oh, that, that's what they're doing. Don't they realize this is cooking oil? <laughs> so they were so zealous for their cause and even realized their mistake in that, that instance. All right, well, this section contains a revelation that, that God will expand Israel's numbers by pouring out his spirit. In contrast, the foolish try to build idols without pausing to realize their foolishness and their blindness. So those who are working to build idols don't even realize just how blind they really are as they try to oppose God and stop him. Let's read Isaiah 44, just verses 1 and 2 here. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Yerushun, whom I have chosen. So God wants to comfort Israel and remove her fears. Note the absence of relying on any of their own works to remove their fears. What things does God want them to know to calm their fears? They don't seem to be afraid. He's with them. Okay, God says... He's with them, certainly. What things in these verses does he remind them that ought to remove their and really our fears? Yeah, my chosen, whom I have chosen. So that, that should remove your fears. If God has chosen you, if God says you're mine, should you be afraid if somebody's chosen you as their target because they're going to try to stop you? Other things. Well, to apply it to today, their gender was already determined. They didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> okay. Who formed you in the womb? Who, who chose you? Yeah. 
You don't have to fear the confusion of today. I guess you could say that. How about my servant? Just You have that title of being God's servant. Your purpose is just. Your, your God has equipped you to serve him. And others. Yep. Well, if you're serving God, yes, that will mean accomplishing his good purpose for others. So we got, he says, you're my chosen, you're my servant. Probably I will help you. And who's the one that's going to help you? The one who made you, who formed you. God's saying, I made you from the very beginning. I formed you in the womb of your mother. I chose you to be my own. I will help you. And he actually repeats, doesn't he? My chosen, my chosen. So God's people should not be afraid. God chose them, formed them, made them, and he's the one who will help them. And they are the one who have the undeserved privilege of being called his servant. Yeah. Also, it's what he says. It's what the Lord is saying, not what he says. Yeah. So listen. Listen to what God says. Now, this is what the Lord says. Don't, don't listen to your own doubts and fears. Let's read verses 3 and 5 now. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. We looked at that last time, right? You know, this new thing that God's going to do of bringing water, it's his Holy Spirit. Okay, also reading now to verse 5 yet. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. So what does God promise to do for Israel here? It's like they're a little plant in a pot, right? I'm going to water you. And when he waters them, when, that is when he pours out his spirit, what's going to happen for Israel. Yeah, so the, the parched land, the dry ground, the thirsty ground. Of course, this is a metaphor. As God says, I'm going to water you, little Israel. What, what does he really mean by pouring out water? What's he really giving them? So if we take this simply as, oh, they're going to be prosperous and their farm fields are going to grow, I'm kind of missing the point. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And then when he says, they'll spring up like grass, like poplar trees. As you know, you water a plant, obviously, as the opportunity to put out shoots and to grow and to expand, uh, become a larger plant and have offspring. Same way that Israel is going to have offspring. But as you see these offspring described in verse 5, how is God going to expand Israel? Writing on their hands that they belong to the Lord, and he's, they're saying they're taking on the name of Israel. Yeah, so people who are not Israel are going to take on the name Israel. People are going to take on the name of the Lord who don't have the name of the Lord. In other words, this is not just simply, I'm going to make you prosper, Israel, by giving you, like he told Abram, numerous descendants. The ultimate picture of those descendants of Abraham are the children through faith, right? When he says, they will take on the name Israel. He's talking about converts, isn't he? People that spiritually will be brought into God's family from outside that family. So 
So far we have God describing to Israel, don't be afraid, Israel, I formed you, you, you know, you little nation of people. I'm going to make you grow as I pour out my, my waters, the spirit that is on you. And you're going to grow and there's going to be people saying, I belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. I'm going to take on the name of the Lord. And you just picture God describing for them how he's really building a kingdom. And that kingdom's going to be built as he brings in people to become Israelites from outside. Uh, really, he's surprisingly extending Israel and causing it to grow by sending his spirit in the hearts of many people. Compare that to the fate of all mankind, which we read at the start of our study, way back in chapter 40, verses 6 and 7. What's the fate of all mankind? The breath of the Lord. All people, they're like grass, right? Grass withers, the flowers fade when the the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The people are just, they're just grass, and God's going to blow on them with the breath of the Lord, and they'll wither and die. All people are like grass. Their glory is so short and fading. So that's the fate of every human being. But what's going to happen for Israel? He's going to water that grass, right? Or that tree, that plant. He's going to cause it to grow. It's going to spring up. The opposite of what we deserve, our, our fate. Okay, um, let's compare this with Acts 2, 16 to 21. And we're going to see one way that this promise is fulfilled. Someone have that open that can read that? Acts 2, 16 to 21. Helen, you got it? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great, thanks. So remembering that context, this is on Pentecost Sunday. Remember what happened that day? The, the rushing of the wind and what looked like tons of fire settling on them. And the people are wondering what's going on as we're hearing the wonders of God in our own languages. And of course, Peter points back to the prophecy of Joel, but doesn't that sound familiar? What Joel writes there is the same as Isaiah, isn't it? I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, both men and women, they will prophesy. So what's one way this promise is fulfilled? Jesus Christ. Sure, Christ pours out the spirit as he promised on Pentecost. You know, he says, wait for what my father has promised and I'll send you my spirit. So this prophecy of Isaiah is really in, in part fulfilled as the gospel starts to go out to the Gentiles, to all nations, on all people, starting at Pentecost. And that prophecy actually goes until the end times, doesn't it? Because it leads into, into the judgment. We could also look at Acts 2.33, where we read, Therefore, since Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So if you go to chapter 2, verse 33, Peter's pointing back and saying, this is what you're seeing. He's poured out his spirit. 
And of course, this continues to be fulfilled, doesn't it? As not only at Pentecost did people take on the name of the Lord, it says they were added to their number. Can you see them? I belong to the Lord as they're baptized in the name of the Triune God on, on Pentecost Sunday, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Going forward, as Jesus' mission is fulfilled, that he sends his disciples to Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth to fulfill what was prophesied, that God would pour out his Spirit as the gospel is preached to all nations. Let's jump forward now to Acts 10.35 to see another way that these words were fulfilled and surprised Israel. So Acts 10.35, if you're still in the book of Acts. You know, should this really have surprised the believers when it happened? X 10, 40, or is it 45, I think? 35. 35? Someone have that? But accepts men from every nation who fear him and do not do what is right. Okay, verse 35 fits, but I think I got the wrong reference. Can you jump, maybe jump 10 verses forward there? Someone have verse 45? I got it. Okay. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Yeah. So the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out, same picture as Isaiah, right? Even on the Gentiles. And how did the, the Jewish believers feel about that? Yeah, I think your translation said astounded. Yes. My translation says they were amazed because the Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. Should that have surprised them? When Isaiah is saying here, they will take on the name of Israel, and they will, be, they will call themselves by the name of Jacob. And some will say, I belong to the Lord. So, shouldn't be surprised that the descendants of Israel are not just the physical descendants, but the descendants of Israel include all who by faith well, have the Spirit. Right. Ultimately, when, when, Abraham's, when Abraham's promise was, your descendants be as numerous as the stars, that included all nations who through his offspring would be blessed and they too would be part of God's family. Okay, um, one more. We've got to keep looking at these verses. This is a, a very important event, God pouring out the Spirit. So let's compare Titus 3 and Romans 5 to discuss how this same promise continues to be fulfilled today. Don't see it just as in Pentecost or, or just when the Spirit was poured out to gifts in the early church. How do we see this same promise fulfilled even today? Someone want to read for us Titus 3, 4 to 7. Yeah, thanks. Notice Paul saying us, our God, he saved us. And how does God save? Verse 6, I think, is a kind of a, a similar one, right? Whom he poured out, the Spirit whom he poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ. So when we find that we are justified, we are added by grace, it's because he poured out his Spirit. Notice too, when um, both in Acts 2 and here in Titus 3, 
There's a sacrament being referred to, right? When, when the Spirit is poured out. I think that was the, the first part there, right? Verses 4 and 5 that Rachel read. Through Jesus Christ. So, yeah. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah, we talk about the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Here's another example of that. Uh, but how did the Spirit get poured out? Well, Jesus said, go and baptize, right? And here in verse 5, by the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's baptism, isn't it? When we talk about that washing, and then the next verse he says poured out. Um, yes, there are waters in baptism that wash, but also the Spirit is poured out on us in baptism with the water and the Word. So he poured out his Spirit on us when we were baptized. So we can say that along with every believer, this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You took on the name of the Lord, along with the people at Pentecost, along with all the believers throughout history. Um, also, Romans 5.5, 5, same, same type of language. Someone have that one? Daryl, you got it? Yeah. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So what has God poured out on us? His love by the Holy Spirit. He's given us his spirit. So yeah, there it's, you know, it's general, it's God. It's both the Father and the Son. The Spirit is poured out as a gift which the Son has been given to give to his people. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is the person of the triune God, and yet the Holy Spirit doesn't come up very often in Scripture, but when he does... He has given credit for being the, the cause of the expansion of the church, the cause for people becoming God's own. Even the word we're reading. Even, Even the word that we're reading. Yeah. Is for, the word has never had its origin in man. Right. It's all because of the spirit movement to write what God wanted. Yeah. So the, the Holy Spirit is ever-present throughout the very beginning. You even see in you know, Genesis 1, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. What was the Spirit involved in at that time? Creation, right? Creating the world. And still the Spirit is giving new life as God is sending His Spirit throughout the world. And the way that we see it tied in with baptism here is, is just a neat picture, reminder to us that you know, this prophecy long foretold of the pouring out of the Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. Other thoughts on these verses? Verses 3 to 5. So in Isaiah 44, verses 3 to 5. Okay. Then let's read a 6 to 8. So we just looked at how God is going to build his church. He's going to bring people you know, into the church as he pours out his spirit. We're going, to, we're going to see the church expand as people say, I belong to the Lord. We saw how that's fulfilled in Pentecost. It's fulfilled today in all who are baptized. It says he's poured out his spirit into our hearts by the washing and rebirth renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's God's work. So God builds Israel. Now we get to the blind fools who are going to try to work and build against God. So that's the rest of this section. Verses 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, 
Let them foretell what is to come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. So for verses 6 through 8 here, divine inspiration and monotheism go hand in hand. God affirms that he alone can foretell what is to come. The truth also affirms that he alone is the true God. So basically here, God is is saying, I foretold this. Who else could do it? Therefore, there is no other God. I alone can foretell. I alone am the true God. Can you select at least two other doctrines that go hand in hand and need repeating? So here, here we see God talking about divine inspiration, that he could foretell, that he gives his word. And that reminds us he's the only God. What other doctrinal teachings go hand in hand Really, one with the other. Okay, God knows our hearts. What's that go hand in hand with? I would say God's omniscience would probably go hand in hand with his judgment. He's just, so we can't escape him. It goes hand in hand with the law and judgment. Okay. What does baptism go hand in hand with? I would say probably conversion, right? Okay. So the I would say the doctrine of baptism goes hand in hand with the power of the word. When we talk about God's word has power, when we talk about baptism, that's why it has power. Yeah. Definitely go hand in hand. One that I, that I thought especially goes hand in hand is creation and marriage, right? You can't talk about one without necessarily missing the other. When we talk about marriage and sexuality, many despise it, uh, but that's probably true because they also despise creation. So if, if you don't respect marriage, there's a good chance you don't respect the fact that God instituted marriage and created us in the beginning, male and female. So I, I'd say those doctrines go hand in hand. Um, I also found baptism and the Spirit's role go hand in hand. Um, Not everyone recognizes the need for rebirth and the working of the Holy Spirit in baptism, but they really, they go hand in hand. Maybe also our spiritual blindness and the Spirit's work in conversion would go hand in hand. Lots of doctrines do. You can't have one without missing the other. Here it's divine inspiration, and there's only one God who can do that and who has foretold Okay, a bit of a side topic, but I thought that was worth noting in verses 6 through 8. Other thoughts on verses 6 through 8? It almost sounds like God's getting cocky there, right? Who is like me? Let them tell it. Go ahead, I challenge you. Is there any other God who has foretold like I have? I know not one. And yet God can do that. God can boast, because there is no other. Right, let's read verses 9 through 20. It's a bit longer reading here, but this whole section connects quite a bit, so we're going to read this all as one chunk. <clears throat> all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. 
They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works it with the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. So notice the, the irony of the one who's making the idol is not powerless. So the, the idol even has a weak maker. Just the fact the idol has a maker. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it out with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. Verse, that was verse 14. So the thing that he's creating his idol out of, God had to make it grow for them to even make something, right? Verse 15. Some more irony about what you make an idol out of. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. So the, the same thing he uses for firewood to make supper, he bows down to as his idol, worshiping the, the cooking oil, I guess we might say. <laughs> Half the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even braked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? We'll pause there. So let's see if we can list some key points God made as he mocks the idol craftsmen and idol worshipers. What are some points we can list here as God mocks them? Right, so the source of their creation had to come from the Creator. They're really taking what God gave and making it a, something detestable and deluded. Yeah, they're making it in their image. You know, God made us in His image, in His likeness, as holy, and the best that they can do is copy human beings. We see that too, if you, especially if you look at like a Greek mythology. Some of the ancient gods, you know, would bear 
human images in ancient Canaanite religions. Uh, but we see that throughout history that the depictions people have, it's just as if God is no better than a man. When we know God had to lower himself to be like us and redeem us, but God is spirit. Other truths that really defy God? They pray to something they created to save them. Yeah, so they make it and then they pray to it, save us. Pretty ironic. Yep. And notice uh, the irony of he warms himself. I think that one was repeated. <clears throat> the thing he cooked his food with and that he warms himself with, he used to fashion the metal and make his idol. He worships it. Yeah. And then he worships it. Way at the, oh, let's see, what verse was that? Um, verse 12. It kind of mocks the creator of the idol. What happens to the idol creator? He gets weak, he gets thirsty, he gets tired. He's the one who makes the idol. And when he prays to the idol, what does it say? Nothing. nothing. Um, when verse 18 says they know nothing, they understand nothing, I think it's not talking about the, the idol fashioner anymore. The they is referring to the idol, isn't it? So you are my God. Uh, someone have a translation that maybe captures that better? They is kind of nondescript when it was just talking about that whole distance. It's talking about the idol fashioners. Save me, you are my God. And it's really, they, the idols, know nothing. The idols understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over, literally plastered over, right? But the same is true of the idol worshiper. They too are blind. So I, I guess if you leave that, that they is... Um, more ambiguous, it, it applies to both. Okay, yeah, and the main point we get to at the end, right? They are blind and foolish and don't even realize it. And I talked about those people that stopped the, the food, the cooking oil truck. They think they're accomplishing something wonderful and they don't even realize their mistake. Uh, idol worshipers, it describes, are misled by their heart, their deluded heart. That's why I titled this whole section here, God Builds Israel, and God does that as he, the life giver, pours out his life-giving spirit, and it causes life. And God can speak, and he foretells the future. Meanwhile, idol builders, they try to build an idol, but it all comes across as so pathetic and foolish. Let's review and discuss. So, <coughs> Can we contrast the working and creation of God and to the working of craftsmith who makes an idol? God can make something out of nothing. Yeah, God forms out of nothing. In fact, at the start of this just chapter, word, just yeah, in the start of this chapter, he says, I formed you in the womb. So God doesn't you know, need a, a tree or anything to form us. In our mother's womb, from the very start of our life, God was fashioning us, making us with his power. God wasn't created, like, right. the idol had to be created, whereas God says here, who is like me? I know not one. I alone, there is no other God. There is no other rock. He's the uncreated, unique, only one. <coughs> other thoughts? It's just ironic that they have to use things that God created. 
in order to create their God. <laughs> right. So a craftsman takes an existing object which God made, and he works hard to make it. He who gets tired in the process of making it has to warm himself and eat food. God well, just said, let there be. Just that they use the, the resources that he made and ignore the God who made them. Like right. And I think Paul brings that up in Romans 1 when it talks about they worship the created things yeah. rather than the creator. So, you know, think about when people turn to worship of not just idols, but maybe the stars. I guess that's growing in popularity again. Um, not astronomy, but astrology, the, the looking to the stars for information. How ironic that God created those for us to mark times and seasons, but we turn to them for secret knowledge or worship them. When they're the created things, they have no power. Uh, let's see if we can compare 44 verse 5 with Psalm 87. So jump back to 44 verse 5. And there we read, Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name Jacob. Still others, the others implies are those spreading up as descendants from outside of Israel. Others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take on the name Israel. Let's compare that to Psalm 87. So we know Isaiah wrote about 700 B.C. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, Philistia too, and there, along with Cush, and will say this one was born in Zion. Yeah, let's pause there. So he lists all these different nations, and it says they'll acknowledge me. And where were they born, even though they're foreigners? In Zion. You know, they were born again as people of God, taking on that, that name. So this is a neat, when you look at Psalm 87, it reminds me of what God really accomplishes in baptism. This one was born in Zion. You were born again into God's kingdom and part of his family. You know, think about Psalm 40, or Isaiah 44 when he says, they will take on the name Lord. They're really taking on a birthright a status as part of God's kingdom and saying, I was born in Zion. Okay, verse 5, you want to continue reading? Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will say, all my fountains are in you. Thanks. So this is the, the sons of Korah. They were commissioned by David. We don't know what year uh, this group would have written this. Uh, perhaps during the time of Solomon or David's time, about a, 300 years or so before Isaiah. This is not a, a new idea that people outside of Israel you know, list Rahab, which um, is a poetic name for Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush, all these surrounding nations are going to be able to say, this one was born in Zion. And it repeats, the Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. 
Reminds me of the picture in Revelation where it talks about the, those who have the seal and God knows who are his, people from every nation, tribe, and language belonging to the Lord. So how is this played out in the history of the church? As we reach out with the gospel, we find others that have already heard the gospel, like in China, even though they were crushed through communism, they're still there and they're still working to try to <coughs> give the word of salvation to others. Yeah. Korea, places you never thought. Like places that the, the devil tried to eradicate the word of God and people didn't have the name of the Lord, suddenly it springs up. You know, go back just a few more verses and he says, I'll pour out my spirit on the thirsty dry ground. That includes places where the, the word for many years was not commonly found. Now it is found. Actually, in China, China if we're going to go there, that's one of the fastest growing places of Christianity. Uh, people are taking on the name the Lord. Yep. So all throughout history, wherever we have evangelism, God pours out his spirit and more people are born again. And not in Japan, for some reason. It's not taking a firm root. Have you noticed that? Yeah, historically, there hasn't been a, a large root or foothold in Japan. Continue to pray for the people. There, there are Christians there, but they're a very small minority. They have remained a minority. You have a Wells mission in Japan? Yep. Um, one of my uh, cousins is married to the son of a Japanese missionary, so we, we have connections and mission fields where we're, we're working with the gospel, but what's challenging there is the whole idea of you have to bear a pretty big cross, uh, that your family will disown you, and the cultural influence to not say, I was born in Zion, but yeah. So 44 verse 3, just to reveal that, he says, I will pour out, my water, pour out water on thirsty land, streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit. How should that influence our interpretation of the new thing we read in the previous chapter? That's 43, verse 18 and following. It says, I'm doing a new thing. I, I give drink to my people. If you just left 43 by itself and didn't look at the surrounding context, you'd say, oh, okay. God says he's going to do a new thing that's going to be so great they'll forget the past. He's going to give them water to drink. That's it. It's really not a new thing. It just repeats itself through every generation, actually. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's not new because, yeah, the, the gospel continues and has always continued. The Spirit always works with the Word. But this new thing, that it would go out and expand even beyond <coughs> Israel, certainly a surprising thing. We read in, in Acts 10 how they're amazed at that. So it's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture, isn't it? If you just let 43 of Isaiah stand by itself and say it had no connection to Isaiah 44, all you would see is God's going to give them water. But when you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you can see, oh, he's leading into pouring out his Spirit is what he means. Uh, this is pouring out the Holy Spirit on a thirsty, spiritually parched land. Yeah, also you could compare it to Isaiah 40. So if you want to look at context, go back to the start of our study. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, right? So that wilderness is not just the fact that it's desolate, it's spiritually desolate. Okay, list some ways, going back to review here of this section, list some ways that people live in delusion because of their stubborn idolatry today. 
So we talked a bit about how blind idol makers can be. What about today? How do we see that happening? Money is definitely an idol where people blindly make that the very end. You know, this money they cry out, save me. They, they use the money to pay their bills and then the money really has their heart. And it becomes their, their all, their oh, idol. Politics. Okay, yeah, it could be politics. Some people set their heart. They, they love and trust in politics more than God. Well, not just and, politics, but an individual. Or their position. <clears throat> right. And that, that is delusion, because if you think that's going to be your source of goodness, it will fail. Their property and their town, you've seen how God just wipes the whole thing out. Yeah, some people can lose everything all, all in a moment. I think being taught today that we're our own gods. You say both. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so humanism, the idea that um, I will save myself, and whatever I determine is right is right, and I'm my own source of goodness. Secret idolatry has become very open in that we worship self. And you, you have to find your happiness and define your reality. That's foolish delusion of the hearts, and it's a blind, ironic, pathetic way to exist. It's sad, really. Yeah. Okay. Thank God that even despite those delusions, he alone is God and he still continues in grace to pour out his spirit. Let's close this section by seeing if we can find at least, at least six descriptions or titles of God. And so Isaiah 44, 1 to 20, look for six descriptions or titles of God. And let's see if we can find how they apply to the Trinity. So I'll give you a moment to scan through these 20 verses, and how do they apply to the Trinity, the three persons of the triune God? Yeah? Verse 2 says he's your maker. Sure. So that would definitely be the Trinity. Yep, we often confess, you know, in the Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Of course, we know it's through the word Jesus and by the working of the Spirit also involved in creation, but generally we credit the Father as our maker, who formed us. Yeah, we want to, let's distinguish the persons here. So I will pour out my spirit. Who's pouring it out? The, the I is God. So if we're going to kind of divide this within the Trinity, not the spirit, the spirit to say this, I will pour out myself. He says, I will pour out my spirit. So you got the Father pours out the Spirit, or you could say the Son, just as we say the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, just look at, you know, you could look at Acts 2.33 that we read earlier. He has received the Holy Spirit who he had poured out, what you now see poured out in here. Or John 14.26, when Jesus promises you will receive the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name. Or John 15.26, uh, that Jesus promises to pour out and send his spirit. So, yeah, there we see the working of the Father as the maker, the Father who sends his spirit. I like where he says he is the first and the last, and apart from him there is no other. Yeah, definitely that applies to the, the Trinity as a whole, that our God, he is the only God. He's one God, the only one God, and yet three persons, as we see in this chapter. How do we see the Son in this chapter? 
Okay, so in verse 6 we have <clears throat> king, redeemer, yeah. So Jesus is Israel's king. He was even, that's what he was titled. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Uh, they mocked him for that, but that's what he truly is, the Holy One of Israel, their king. And he is the redeemer. Um, God the Father did not lay down his life and take on flesh, but God the Son redeemed us as he was sent to take on flesh, to pay the price with his own flesh and blood. So Jesus, the Son, is our Redeemer. Also, I guess you might say that the Son is our rock, because think of how Peter talks about, you know, Jesus is the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected. He is our rock. So Christ, our rock. Um, Jesus also is, if you look at Revelation, I'm the first and the last. He takes on that title. How about the spirits? We talked about the Father is the maker, the Father sends his spirit, the Son is the King, the Redeemer, the Rock, the first and the last. How do we see the Holy Spirit in this chapter? He is what's poured out. Now, water is the, the picture, but what's fulfilled in is the pouring out of the Spirit, yeah. You like the Word? Pouring out the Word, too? Or the Word. Yep, when, when we put this in the context of baptism, it's the water and the word in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, really, what is, what is the Father and the Son pouring out? It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the, the picture of giving water to the thirsty ground is God pouring out his Spirit. Um, when people take on the name Israel, that's the work of the Spirit, right? So how are people going to spring up and take on the name of the Lord? It's because they have the Spirit. So the Spirit is converting hearts uh, making people newborn offspring or descendants as he brings them to faith. And it's kind of a little bit less obvious, but you can look at when God says, did I not proclaim it long ago? We know the prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So once again, the work of the Spirit is conversion, and the work of the Spirit is revelation of the Word of God to reveal the Word to us. Good. So I just thought that'd be a good exercise <clears throat> to see we can find the Trinity throughout Scripture, um, the working of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons. Other thoughts on 44, 1 to 20? Since we only got about seven minutes, I think this might be a good breaking point. Next time we'll pick it up with 21 to 28. That God won't forget his promise. And if you want the new sheet, I have the next sheet out for 45. There is so much in just the first couple of verses of chapter 45. That could easily take a whole section. But God there takes on uh, an unbeliever. He says, someone who doesn't know my name, but calls him his chosen, his anointed. So we'll discuss that when we get to chapter 45. Why don't we close with a prayer about what we looked at today uh, regarding... Uh, these promises, and regarding what the Lord reveals here. Lord, we praise and thank you that you've revealed that you have promised to pour out your Spirit and that others, people outside of Israel, would become your, your own as they take on your name. And we see how you fulfilled this as promised at Pentecost, the pouring out your Spirit on all people. And we see how it went further beyond Pentecost as the Gentiles took on the name Israel and received the gift of your spirit. And as the apostle says, 
You have poured out your Spirit abundantly on our hearts through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Continue, Lord, in your mercy and in your love to pour out your Spirit on this thirsty land, uh, the world around us, and strengthen our own hearts as you cause us to grow in faith by your Spirit's working. And Lord, we also looked at today how Isaiah revealed how you view those who worship idols. Regrettably, Lord, we see the, the sad state of those who are deluded by their own hearts, trying to build their own kingdom. As we see them constructing their own secret idolatry or even bowing down literally to the stars created things or man-made things. Help us to, by your spirit, to spread your kingdom and your gospel, pointing people to you, our rock, our redeemer. There is no other. Amen. Christ on my